the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 204 for Monday, Memorial Day, May 25th, 2009. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the show. I'm Dave Hamilton. I'm here with John Braun. How are you, John? Good, good. Have happy, a nice uh, four-day weekend. That's good. Happy Memorial Day for uh, to you and and everyone else in the uh, in the states that celebrates it. Yep, the unofficial uh, start of uh, summer and and all that. Yep, absolutely. Now you, you said, John, you, when we were doing the pre-show here, you said that there was a an, another day being uh, celebrated. Well, it's not today. only Memorial Day. Today is also Tal Day. Now explain to me what Tal Day is. I had not heard of this before you mentioned it to me, but I'm I'm shocked because I I'm a fan. Yes, this is um, and for those of your fans, you can already figure this out. But Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is by uh, Douglas Adams, one of the, the most important thing if you are an intergalactic hitchhiker is that you always know where your towel is. It's just one of the things in the book that that, that proves to be true. Um, and so people commemorate his uh, you know, he's no longer with us, uh, so they commemorate. Um, every May 25th, Tal Day, or at least a bunch of people do, or I saw tweets about it. So I hadn't heard of it either, but hey. I, I wish I'd known I would have brought a towel with me today. We, uh, <laughs> we, we, we trudged around Durham, New Hampshire, doing a family scavenger hunt, which was, uh, uh-huh. which was actually a lot of fun. But it would have been even more fun had we been able to carry a towel and, and, and explain why we had it to everyone. I think that would have been, uh, mm-hmm. that would have been great. So last show, we, we got deep into uh, designing wireless networks, and, uh, and, and we had a bunch of cool stuff found on the list that we, we promised we would get to at the end of the show. And then, of course, you know, promises are cheap, yeah. right? So we didn't, we didn't actually get to them. So we're going to start the show with, uh, with our promises here. And I'm going to turn around and pick up some of the goodness that I got what? here. I want to tell you about this thing. It's it's called the it's from a company called Trickle Star, TrickleStar.com. You They're, have one? I, I'm holding it in my in hand. Front of you. Wow, in front we of do me. video. Uh, well, see, I've been trying to do video, but you know, the guy I do the show with says, uh, "I don't know. We I don't know if we can do video." Oh, he could be a jackass sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Keep going. Oh, yo, you meant John. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's Pilot Pete, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, yeah, so it, there, there are two things they sent me here, wh- which are cool. It, it, the, the kind of the big, the big deal here is the PC trickle saver. Now they also have the regular TV trickle saver, they call it. And the idea here is any device that goes into standby mode draws power. Now, not a lot of power. That's the idea, but they do draw some power and you have a lot of these devices and it's going to draw, you know, grand sum total, a, a not insignificant amount of power. Their concept is, OK, look, you have one device that's the main device. Take your computer, right? You might have a printer and a scanner and perhaps uh, a monitor, right, hooked up to your computer and all this other stuff. And really, none of it is useful to you unless your computer is not only on, but awake. And so the idea here is that you use the PC trickle saver and it has three outlets on it. One or three extensions. One, you plug into power into the wall. The other, you plug into the USB port of your computer. And lastly, you plug uh, the, the final one. You plug a power strip into it and you plug all the devices that you want to have controlled by your computer. As soon as your computer goes to sleep, this works with Macs, of course, and, and PCs. As soon as your computer goes to sleep, all this stuff goes off. Pretty cool. Now, they have another device called the PC Trickle Switch, which is which gets in the way of that USB signal. And you can press a little switch that even when your computer is on, it keeps all that other stuff off. Now, obviously, a monitor is not something you would want to have off when the uh, computer is on. But a scanner or a printer might certainly be something that you'd uh, that you do with that. So it's all all available at tricklestar.com. Now, it, you know, it it is it is a cool thing and they make it for the TV as well. I will say you want to engineer this system intelligently when you're setting it up. Uh if you have your cable modem and your router, you 
probably don't want to set those to be controlled by this trickle saver because you don't want those to turn off when your computer goes off unless a that's the only computer you're using it with and b you don't mind a little power up time uh, from when you wake your computer until your internet access is actually up and alive um, and the same with the tv you know I, they, they talk about using it with your television and your receiver and perhaps your TiVo and all that stuff. Obviously, if you've got a DVR, you don't want that to be off when your TV is off because then it's not recording anything. And for me, I would not pull power from my AV receiver when my TV is off because then it would lose all the settings that I have in there uh, for, you know, what what uh, types of speakers I have and what volume I want my rear speakers and what volume I want my front speakers, etc. But uh, but Used used properly, this is a pretty cool device. So that's all available at uh, TrickleStar.com. I wanted to throw it out there. Don't pro it. Cool stuff found. How, how many how many clams does that? Uh... So the, the I I could not find a price on the device that I have in my hand, and I think it's not quite out yet. Um, uh, I know the TV version is thirty bucks. Um, my guess is this one falls somewhere in there, but because it's got USB, you know, that might add 10 bucks to the price. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's, it's in that, in that range. Okay. Um, and I saw something very similar. I went to a show a few weeks ago, ran into a Mr. Hazelrig. Um, and actually someone else on Twitter, maybe be the next show that they're, uh, they're having. Anyways, I think it's a bowling theme. I think we're actually going to get to do bowling. That could be fun. What, what was the show? Uh, Echo Focus is the show. But anyways, okay. Monster, you know, the ones that sue everybody. <laughs> the, the cable company? Yeah. Monster well, Apparently they, they make uh, power products. And, and they have one called the Monster Green Power Digital Power, Server, power Center NDP900. At least that's one of the products. Okay. And it does something very similar. You plug things into certain, uh, you know, receptacles on this device. And then when you shut the computer down, it shuts down. Similar to what you described, it'll shut down all the other things. Yep. So, uh, so th- this idea. is the monster thing has the the power strip built into it. Yes, it's not it's not just the the control device. It's the control device with the power strip. And I I seem to remember that one being not 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 cheap, right? Hundred and thirty bucks. I don't think it, I don't think it really has control. I think it's it's all built into the device. Um, okay, but I do see on here. I mean, it looks like they have uh, cable connectors, um, several different type of connectors to right. filter out surges and stuff like that. Um, okay. Yeah, the the retail price is one forty nine. So, okay. You know, yeah, it's, so it's they, priced they, like monster stuff is priced, I guess. The the Trickle Star uh, device it is not it does not do surge protection, uh, to my knowledge, but it does prevent. I asked them. I said, "Look, you know, I'm plugging something. I, I'm wary of plugging a device into the wall." And then plugging it into my USB port, you know, this this sounds dangerous. Right. And they said, no, no, not to worry. Uh, You are shielded. The USB circuit is completely separate from the power circuit and surges, you know, in theory, should not uh, should not cross the the great divide there. So. All right. Uh, Brent, uh, Mr. Truck Lover on Twitter and uh, and our fill in AAC conversion guy. Uh, sent in this comment. Hey guys, it's Truck Lover Brent from uh, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. I just finished listening to the latest podcast, and I just wanted to say you guys are just a hoot to listen to. Uh, it's funny. I always enjoy listening to it, and uh, definitely brings a laugh. I want to follow up on three things uh, from this this Monday's podcast and previous shows. So on Cool Stuff Found, one thing that I've really liked is a little application called Soundfly or Soundfly Receiver. Um, what it is is two applications, and it installs on two different Macs. So I have a laptop and I have a desktop. And what I'm able to do is basically any sound that comes out of, say, the laptop, you know, if I'm sitting on the couch and my desktop is hooked up to the stereo speakers, I can get the sound output to go from the laptop over the wireless network or wired network to the output of the desktop and vice versa. So if, if I'm playing any sound on any other machine, I can say I don't want it to come out of the sound on this speakers. I want it to come out of the sound, uh, the, the speaker output of the other machine. So one, one computer runs Soundfly and one computer runs Soundfly receiver. Great little application to basically route your audio 
over the network of your house. It's it's cool stuff. Um, also, a Dropbox, something else that y'all talked about recently. I've been using Dropbox for over six months. As a college student, I keep all of my documents on there. I do not even use the user's documents folder on my computer. And that's fantastic for me because, as you said, I can share folders uh, with other college students um, that are working on a project. Everybody has that same file. I update it. They all have a copy. They update it. You know, everybody else's files stays in sync. Also, the beauty of it is that I can go back whenever I started using Dropbox, which was six-plus months ago, I can get any file that I want back however it was six months ago. So if I deleted something five months ago, I can go back and get it. That's fantastic. And I also recommend Dropbox for people that do not have any other source of backup for their documents. I, I have talked to several college students where they lost all their files. They lost everything because of a hard, hard drive crash or viruses on their ill-fated Windows machine. So as as a backup solution, it's fantastic. And if you don't have any more than two gigs, it's, it's the best thing to do. Because as soon as you put a file in Dropbox, like you know, it gets got up to the cloud. So if anything happens to that file, you lose it, you, you delete it, and you didn't really need it back, just log into the web interface, and there you go. It's awesome. That is a lifesaver for several college students who just can't afford uh, external hard drives or online backup and what have you. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to follow up on is GarageBand. Uh, a couple of shows ago, uh, somebody was digitizing their vinyl record, their analog, <laughs> their analog audio sources. And I have done this numerous times as I have digitized my records, and I've used GarageBand to do so. And it will, in fact, uh, export those files as individual tracks. I record a, a single um, worship service for um, that, that gets dedicated to two separate podcasts. One is for the sermon. One is for the worship and the you know the media, the singing and all that. Some people may want to subscribe to only one. Some may subscribe to uh, the other or even both. So yes, you can in GarageBand record the entire vinyl record, start to finish. You know, side one, fifteen minutes, pause it, uh, flip your record, and then do side two. And then what I do is actually create two different tracks, you know, track one, track two, and I just keep uh, adding the plus button, and I, you know, here's song one, and then song two goes to the next track, and I can export those out individually to iTunes and, and what have you. So those are the three things that I wanted to follow up on. I'm going to end this conversation. I'll talk to you guys later. Enjoy. Hey, all right. Thanks, Brent. Amen. That's uh you know, we can we can learn something from him, John. He was very concise. He he packed three things into uh, the time it'll take us to talk about the next one here. So, well, you know, I want to mention one thing where actually it saved the day for me. So, um, I was working at home on Thursday. I had my uh, my PC. Unfortunately, I didn't have my power supply, so I only was uh, so I had two batteries, but I wasn't getting much use. So, you know, I was just at the point in the day where someone from Microsoft is going to call me back because I'm working on a support issue with them. And uh, one one battery I sucked up, and the other one, I thought the machine was in standby mode, but something prevented it from going to sleep, so it ran its battery down to, like, you know, minutes. Okay. And then the guy, after that, so my PC basically, like, died in front of me as I'm on the phone with the guy. I'm like, oh, great, and I didn't have my power supply. Uh, fortunately, a coworker actually brought it by on his way home. But um, <clears throat> So what got me, though, is he's like, well, can you send me the file that you, uh, you know, your installer, it's an installer and, and, and some other things. And I'm like, oh man, you know, my PC's down. And then I realized what I had been using is to test this installer. I'd been using Dropbox between my PC and a virtual machine running under uh, VirtualBox. I was using it as the, because uh, tra- cool. even a USB drive is a pain in the neck. Because a lot of times sure. these VMs, only one person can own the, the flash drive. So it gets to be kind of, you know, tedious. Right. Or a shared folder or stuff like that. It's just Dropbox is kind of the easiest way to do this. Assuming you have a zippy network and you're not, you know, shuttling around, you know, massive amounts of data, which in this case, it wasn't a lot of data, a few right. hundred K. So it was really the best way to do it. But then what was cool is that I had deleted it. But as we talked before, I was able to do a restore and take the most recent version and send it to the guy. Otherwise, uh, assuming I, I didn't get my, uh, 
you know, power supply for my friend, I would have had to wait until the next day I, I came into work. That's awesome. So the, the restore feature, and I'm curious how long that lasts. Or uh, people, people have written in and said that they've pulled stuff from six months ago, eight months ago. So I think it, I think it, it lives for a while. I'm not sure what they guarantee. Yeah. Because a lot of version control systems will, you know, actually yeah. save that stuff unless you explicitly say destroy it. So I assume at some point they'll purge, you know, the oldest stuff, similar to, to Time Machine, which we're going to talk about a little more later. But uh, right. what's next? Actually, let's talk about Time Machine right now. So Margaret want to? wrote, yeah, Margaret wrote in um, and said, as a website designer, keeping my files backed up is important. I switched from the Kluge retrospect to Time Machine last year. I absolutely love the ease of making backups and restoring files, but two things have made me nervous about relying on it. First, I had the same data corruption issues that John had last year, screwed up sparse bundles. Second, I never know what Time Machine is doing. I seem to have solved the first problem by uh, giving up on a NAS drive and using Drive Genius, and I stumbled across a possible solution to the second, a widget called Time Machine Buddy. It displays the current and past status of Time Machine and displays the corresponding messages, details about the backup, which appear to be backup D reports from the system log. You can also scroll back through past backups to see older messages. By having this on my dashboard, I'm much more likely to notice a problem with Time Machine, and I immediately have the details about what went wrong. Yeah, so what, what Margaret has found is an app. It doesn't have any data you can't get elsewhere, but it does kind of pull all this data into one uh, window, one UI and that way she sees everything all at once. And like she said, she's more apt to look as opposed to opening up the console, mm. filtering for backup D. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's what this app is doing. It's just doing a search on, on the system log, pulling back all the stuff that talks about backup D and reporting it to her. But here it's automatic. It yep. pulls it. And uh, so thanks, Margaret. That That's fantastic. And you probably want to use Time Machine Editor also because Time Machine tends to be a real chatty Cathy. Mm-hmm. And so the, all that log info, may, you may get kind of sick of it. Yeah, so what John talked yeah. about and, and glossed over quickly there is something we've mentioned before, a time machine editor. It allows you to set the backup interval for when time machine backs up. So you're not forced to back up every hour. You can back up once a day if you want. You can back up every three hours, whatever you want. Uh, so, yeah, highly recommended. I couldn't, I, I, now that I have that, I couldn't live without it. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about time machine later, but yeah. uh but we do have at least two more cool things found and perhaps more along the way. Catching my breath. Allergies today for me have been horrendous and I never have allergy problems. But uh, but here I am today. Eyes itching and throat scratchy. And Sharon says, I cannot take credit for this one. My current job lets me listen to hours and hours and hours of podcasts to help me get through the day. And credit for this goes to Al at the Mac Roundtable podcast who found this. It's called Etherpad at etherpad.com, E-T-H-E-R-P-A-D.com. It's a free collaborative writing web-based tool. I think the other podcast was using this for doing their show notes as each person can contribute to the whole document. You can invite as many people as you like simply by giving them the directly URL provided when you create a pad. You can save revisions of your work and have unlimited undos. This is, I, I checked this out. There's a, a, a video, a video, that's, that's a combination of a movie and a video. Uh, a, a movie that you can <laughs> watch. Save. Thanks. Uh, where you can see this in action. You can see what it looks like when four people are editing a document. And it's awesome. Uh, it, it, you know, very cool for that collaborative editing. You, you can be editing one section of the document and actually see other people editing the other section of it live right there uh, in your web browser. So it's like, you know, Google Docs on, on Roids or Rails or whatever you want to call them. Is it time for me to talk about Air Radar? I love Air Radar. So I stumbled onto this. John, you had done a, uh, uh, a, a Monday's Mac Gadget back in September on this, as you told me during our pre-show. Mm -hmm. I, I, I missed that or I saw it but never paid attention to it. I don't know why. Maybe because you've never mentioned it on the show. Could I say that, perhaps? But uh, Air Radar is a perfect, to me, app for discovering the details of and just the existence of other wireless networks much better in, in my opinion than iStumbler. Uh, for one, it will show you the channels of five gigahertz network, which is something iStumbler will not do. And for another, you can click on a network and get details and it'll show you security uh, settings and, and all sorts of stuff about the network in a really clean interface. So it's called air radar. 
It is 10 bucks, but right now, and I don't know how long this is going to last, MacUpdate.com. If you go to MacUpdate.com slash somethingbig.php, of course, we'll put that in the show notes, it will allow you to, uh, you can get it for free. You got all you got to do is sign up at Mac Update and uh, boom, you can you can download it and register it for free. So. I like it. Do You have anything to say about it, John? <clears throat> Nothing anything, anything to add already been said. All right. Um, you know, while we're uh, so so I think we're done with with cool stuff found. I, we have a, a bunch of comments about uh, our airport discussion last week. So I want to get into those here. Make sure we don't that we that we address that topic but first our sponsor for this show is audio engine at audioenginusa.com they have the audio engine w2 which is a wireless speaker adapter for your ipod or iphone it plugs into the dock connector on the bottom of your ipod or iphone and any audio that you would send out of your phone or or ipod gets blasted across this wireless signal to a receiver and you connect the receiver either up to just a set of speakers or to your stereo receiver in your house. And it, you know, it's, it, think of it as a, a dockless dock for, uh, for sound. You can carry your iPod or iPhone around as the remote. And when you choose a new song to play, boom, it starts coming out of your speakers, wherever they are. Uh, it uses the same wireless technology that the other audio engine products, the W1 uses. So it is, uh, you could watch a movie on your, on your iPod or iPhone and have the sound coming out of uh, speakers elsewhere that it, it will stay in sync and it's full high quality sound. It's not, uh, it, you know, I've used it here and it, it's not degraded in any way. It, it's full, full quality sound. It's uh, 169 bucks from audio engine USA and it is the, Audio Engine W2. Again, it's a little dock that hangs off the bottom of your iPod or iPhone and sends the signal wirelessly out. You got anything else on, on that one, John, while I wet my whistle here? Nothing. I could hum a little tune. Oh, well, I, I'm, I, I'm always up for being entertained. You could, you could, could hum do, a little I tune. Could, and people I could, could a little dance. So <laughs> the dance isn't... If you won't let us do video, the dance isn't really worth the entertainment value, so... But talking about doing a little dance is sort of funny. All right. Uh, we will go to Cyrus here. And this is a question we actually wanted to play in. Oh, the wireless. Last... Oh, I got something I'll, I'll mention later. Or I can mention it now. To go. We're, so so, so we're, can... we're shifting our discussion to to picking up from the airport discussion last week. And I have no idea where John's going to go with this. So that's Hold on, the one thing that, that got me, though. So we were talking about placement and you made a very valid point. Um but, but it was still nagging me in the back of my mind. And let me, let me just, uh, yep. so I think it's a question to the user. So you said, and your statement was entirely correct, that um, uh, with an omnidirectional antenna, the radiation pattern is pretty much circular. Spherical. Or spherical, yes. It's that it's going out in all directions, you know, unless there's, there's stuff in the way, in either general. metal or liquids or in general. The thing that gets me is I was looking, because I've worked with different type of antennas, and there's, you know, circular, there's, you know, horizontal polarization, vertical. There are ways that antennas can influence, you know, which way. Uh, and what I was trying to find, and, and I know people do this sort of thing. We actually have a lab that does it, but everything has a radiation pattern, and sometimes they can be unexpected depending on what type of, and I got to look for a take apart of, of an airport and just see what they're doing. Because I mean, I'm sure it, it, you know, to me, the most sense would be yes, an omnidirectional antenna. Um, but I read reports like of some very, very early Apple units, like, you know, the old spaceship ones where I guess they yeah. were not quite, um, you know, Omni, they, they were, they were somewhat directional either due to the weird way the antenna was or something like that. Oh, but, uh, really? but I'm wondering if anybody's, I looked and I didn't find anything. I mean, the, the search, you know, I tried to Google for radiation pattern and, and airport um, express or airport extreme and, and didn't really find a lot. Huh. I mean, one could also do it if you have, you know, like you use, uh, for example, well, we kind of suggested, but if you use something like air radar and you boogie around, you, you'll get signal strength readings and can kind of draw a very rough, you know, yeah. 3D diagram. It's a pain in the neck. It, it, it'd be much nicer to have, you know, a machine that does this, which basically, you know, just rotates an antenna around something and then it builds a 3D graph and you're like, oh, okay, that's right. So if anybody's done that or anybody knows where to find that info, I'd be, I'd be very, very interested or just knows, you know, what type of, of antenna we got in some of the, uh, the latest Apple stuff. 
Yeah, I, I know when, you know, I, I, I'm brought back to my, my audio experience where when you buy a microphone, you can, you know, they, they always publish a, a pickup pattern, right? You know, and, and it might be yeah, omni, yeah, omnidirectional or, or cardioid or hypercardioid, hyper right. but even, even with those very general descriptions, it's never exact. And so they, they, you know, release this, this picture. It's a drawing of, okay, when you're in front of the microphone, here's what you're going to get. And as you get around the side, it's not going to be as good or it's going to be better or whatever. So, yeah. And I've even seen kits, um, though it gets kind of squirrely with the latest airport, but there are external antenna kits. Now with yeah. the older ones, which actually had a PCMCIA card with an antenna connector. Uh, and, right. and I actually still have one sitting around somewhere where, where if you get an external antenna and you know what you're doing, you can almost always improve the performance versus, you know, what's buried in there. Yeah. I, with, um, I have one of the old snow airport extreme base stations, So 54 G and I used an, I use an extend air. Gosh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's, I don't think it's the extend air Omni. Um, it's, it's a, it's a different extend air. Gosh, I can't remember the name of it. Extend Air Direct is what they call it. And uh, and that does allow me to kind of blast the signal. What I do is I plug it into the Airport Extreme and it, and it lets you focus the signal in one direction. So I put it in one corner of my house and broadcast it away from that corner because I just don't need it going the other direction. And it does help because clear in the other corner of the house is the TiVo and the Wii. So these are important devices to uh, to reach. And it, it does. It seems to help. So, um I don't know. You know, maybe it's hey. just in my head. It could be. Yep. Cool. All right. So that was a nice little blend of of, of cool stuff found into our, our airport discussion here. And then we'll let uh, Cyrus take it away. Hey, John, Dave, this is Cyrus in Round Rock, Texas. Got a question about Mackie Gab 202, where you talk about router interference. Ah, actually, wireless router interference. Is there a way or is there a wireless router that automatically selects a channel that has the least amount of interference from other wireless routers so that you don't have to go in and experiment with different channels? Or if you are not uh, technically inclined and even know how to do it, you don't, you're don't not forced to get into the internals of the, the setup for the wireless router. I love your show and I'd love to hear what kind of feedback you've got. Thanks. Okay, so I, uh, John, I think most routers now actually do have an automatic mode. I, Apple's routers certainly do with the current firmware. Even even the older routers do this with the current firmware, and it can be handy because the router does uh, a scan, figures out what channel is the least used, and uh, and goes ahead and chooses it. Now, uh, the 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 problem is, and the reason that I wouldn't necessarily recommend using this is in my experience, and again, please correct us if uh, if I've got this wrong, but in my experience, it does not constantly or regularly do this. It only does it on startup. So if your router is going to be up for, you know, months at a time, uh, don't expect that it's going to adapt. And if it sees another network on that same channel, it, I, I don't think it's going to move. I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't, but uh, but maybe not. So. I you know, I was looking and I could not find any data to indicate that it did it on a constant basis. I was trying to look for something even in some of the 802 specs to say, you know, if yeah, if yeah. you're set for auto, does it try? And I guess it's up to the vendor. And I guess some vendors, I think you met, you mentioned this, don't even offer the option. So right, you right. have to choose something manually. Uh, um, so, so that that's one reason why I would choose something manually, John. The other reason that I would choose it manually is... It only scans the area that it can see, right? And typically, if you're close to the router, it's going to be okay, even if you've got something else on that channel. It's not necessarily going to be great, but you're not going to start running into problems. Where you run into problems is if you're at the edge of the router's range. Uh, like I mentioned before, with my you know my TiVo clear on the other corner of the house, um, the router's not going to see the same things in its corner that the TiVo's going to see in its corner. And so you might not, the router's not going to know that, ah, there is something else that's reaching as far or to the edge of where I can reach that has that same frequency. It, 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 it's just not going to pick it up. And that can cause problems. And in fact, for me, it did cause problems. 
And uh, and I then had to go change that channel and, and now I'm fine. So. Uh, so, yeah, I you know, I would it it's not bad to use it. Um, it's certainly nice to have it auto sense that on startup. And, you know, if you're having a problem and you think, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off my router and restart it. Well, maybe it's going to fix it, you know, because it will sense that on startup. But mm. um, but you're you're better off taking a computer and going around using something like like air radar, which 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 we mentioned uh and and going to the edges of the range and figuring out what else you see there, because it is going to be different at the edge. If there is stuff at the edge, you won't necessarily see it when you're uh, when you're in the center. Right, John? Right. You got anything to add there? Um, I don't know if it's appropriate for this question. Well, all right, then. I'll, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Interference robustness. I don't know if. Yeah, yeah it's, that's actually good to talk about with Andrew's question. Should I should I uh, play? That's what I was Andrew's thinking. Could you go for this one? And uh, all right, I'll, yeah. I'll play. Uh, well, you know, what? let me let me throw Mike's thing in here just to uh, to, mm-hmm. to get it, and then yeah, and then perfect. All right, so Mike says after listening to this week's show, I thought about my WPA security setting and how I was set to WPA PS key pre shared key TKIP, and off the top of my head, I do not remember what TKIP is, but I know already. John is looking up TKIP and AES. I switched it to WPA, PSK, TKIP, and AES, and now my wife's PC shows up fine, but still no G4. I see Alec, uh, let's see, the, 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 you know, the, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up here because there is, uh, he sent us two emails and he forwarded the first one in. So what was happening was his G4 was not seeing his G4 and his PC were having trouble uh, seeing all the other computers on the network. He could connect them. He could get on the Internet fine, but he could not see the rest of the stuff. He went through these security settings and now his PC showed up fine. Uh, but his G4 would not show up for, uh, to be shared amongst his other computers on his network, nor would it show up uh, would on that computer. He couldn't see any of the others. What he wound up realizing was that his G4 and presumably his PC before that were connected to his neighbor's wireless network, similar to the problem I talked about with the, the client and her printer recently. And and that's why they couldn't see anything. So the, the moral of Mike's story here, which I hope I made clear, uh, is make sure that your computers are connecting to your wireless network and not your neighbor's or someone else's. Because if they are... You'll get on the Internet fine. And if that's your goal, well, hey, more power to you. But uh, if you want to share files amongst them or share printers or any resources, you want to make sure you're connected to your network. And on the Mac, you can go in, of course, into system preferences, network and, uh, and John and Peter. Oh, they're, they're OK. John and Pete have a Skype thing going. System preferences, network, airport. And you can click advanced and remove the airport networks to which you do not want to connect. And then that way your Mac won't automatically connect to your neighbors and, and that sort of thing. So uh, TKIP stands for temporal key integrity protocol. And John AES stands for. Oh, I think that's advanced encryption standard. And in my experience, the Mac is much happier using AES. Do not set it to both. Um, I, I think you're better off setting it to uh, WPA two for your encryption and AES as the uh, as the the key management or or whatever it is. That's what I have to say. That's all you got to say. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. But here, but Andrew's got something to say. Hi, John Dave. This is Andrew. Um, listening to your last podcast about Wi-Fi networks, and I wanted to add a few things you missed. Uh, the first thing about things in your house that can cause interference, uh, you left out two big ones. The first one is the microwave. And while a microwave is not running, it's not too much of a problem except it's a square of metal. But if it is running, uh, it's creating very, very high energy 2.4 gigahertz radiation, which definitely interferes with you know, G and B Wi-Fi and N if it's running on that, at that channel too. So... Uh, if you're setting up a situation you don't want to have a microwave be in between the base station and where you're going to be uh, using your computer a lot, uh, 
isn't necessarily a problem, but your your internet can duck out when the microwave turns on for that reason. Uh, the similar one is if you have uh, wireless phones, uh, so landlines that have a wireless connection, these function either in a 2.4 gigahertz range, just like Wi-Fi, or in a 5 or sometimes 5.8 gigahertz range. Uh, and so that's another thing to consider if you have, and if you use wireless phones, it's good to have them be in the channel that you're not using for wireless internet, and that way they don't interfere with each other. Uh, similar to Wi-Fi, cordless phones do have channels, but they, unlike Wi-Fi, they traditionally sort of just pick whichever one they like. And so instead of instead of finding a channel and sticking on it, they will frequently bounce around between different channels and get in your way. Uh, so it, it's not necessarily easy to have Wi-Fi and cordless phones play nicely with each other on the same channel. Uh, um, the the other thing that I wanted to warn your listeners about is about bridge mode because not all routers support bridge mode. And I had a situation with this where my uncle got a new Netgear router that was a basic cheap router because he wanted to uh, extend the range of Wi-Fi in his house. And he was, was a little misguided to start with because uh, it was an N router, which, you know, was advertising greater range. And uh, so he brought it home and didn't realize that none of his computers had an N Wi-Fi card in it. So it didn't actually expand his his range practically having it where it was. But we tried to set it up in bridge mode halfway across the house so that it would extend uh, the network and that the, the Netgear router did not support going into bridge mode and that you had to plug a... Ethernet port into the back of it to get it to do anything, and even once you did that, it wouldn't. It, it, so it wouldn't repeat, and it also wouldn't. Um, it wouldn't become a slave. It would only. It was that the software was stripped so that it would only, you know, distribute grab a grab a. Uh, and that's actually where the uh, the voicemail cut him off. But but he did mention a couple of good things in there. So thank you, Andrew. So right, the two point four gigahertz. Interference from the microwave is key. Now, John, earlier you mentioned something about uh, a setting called interference robustness. I did? Yes, I did. So anyways, that is in when when you go to radio mode and you're in one of the 2.4 gigahertz radio modes, if you click on wireless options in the uh, airport utility, you'll see a little checkbox, use interference robustness, which uh, it says, uh, you know, it helps with things like cordless phones or wireless video monitors. Okay. They should say microwaves, too, because I think that was one of the big, you know, because that operates at 2.4 gigahertz. And I think it changes some of the timing or framing or whatever, so they're less likely to interfere with one another. I think you may take a little performance hit, but, you know, at least it'll work. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does take a performance hit. The the other thing we should talk about, a couple of settings that, that get a little wacky in there. You'll see on the airport, uh, um, in the airport utility, you'll see settings that talks about multicast rate. And you can set that by default. It's at two megabits. And on mine, of course, the, 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 the I think it goes from one to 11. What that is, multicast is the protocol by which, and John, please help me here because I might get this description wrong. It allows you to, from one computer, send out one stream, so perhaps a, a video stream, that can then be received by multiple computers on your network. And and then there's multicast on, on a LAN, which is what I'm talking about on a local network. And then you can do wide area multicast as well. But it allows you to send one signal out uh, instead of, you know, if I want to have the video that I'm sending up here on your laptop and on Pete's laptop and on my wife's laptop... Uh, I could send it individually to all three, but now I'm using triple the bandwidth or I can use multicast to send it out to all of you with one stream. That multicast rate is you set it to what you want the minimum rate to be of a connection. Now, uh, before it allows multicast with airport, the further you get from the base station or the more interference or the lower your signal is for whatever reason, you uh, your rate, you know, you might start it at what they call 54 megabits, which isn't really. But and then it ratchets down and you might go to 11 or seven or five and a half or three or two or one. 
And by default, multicast on the airport routers is set to two, which means that if your signal is such that your rate is less than two, it will not address multicast packets to you. This is up to the router to decide and it will not send them to you. You can set that lower and allow more multicast packets to be sent. So that that's what that is. Most of us will probably never use it, but I know just by saying that somebody's going to write in and say, actually, that's not true. Such and such service uses it. And, uh, and please do so that we can, we can get that right. Yeah. I'd like to, to hear anybody use it. I, I don't think I've ever knowingly used it. My understanding is that it's a, it's a specific type of IP address and if the router recognizes this IP address as being multicast, then it it, it redistributes or rebroadcasts in a smarter way than right. clogging the network. Um, right. Though again, I don't know if I've I've knowingly or unknowingly uh, used something like that. Yep. So, uh, but that's a good one to point out because yeah, you, um, I guess you got to think of what people are doing with the network and whether you want to restrict them so they don't hog all the bandwidth. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, so I had, I don't know, we had we had several people write in and say, what about SSIDs? SSIDs being the name of the wireless network. When you're using multiple base stations to extend a network, you know, we talked about bridge mode. We're not going to go through that again. You, you got, you know, show number 203 hopefully explains that well enough. Uh, we didn't get a whole lot of questions about it, so I think we got it. But when you've got all these base stations set up, what is the best thing to do? Do I set a different name for the network of each base station or do I use the same name across all of them? And the general consensus out there is that you're better off using the same name and the same encryption settings or the same security settings across all of your base stations so that your clients can just move from one to the other and basically seamlessly to the user hop from one 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 access point to the other without realizing it without having to reauthenticate yep. and go through all that um there there are a couple of of gotchas here when organizing your network you want to make sure that you are using different channels so same name for the network but different channels so that they're not interfering with each other if you're on 802.11g you want to use 1, 6, and 11. Each of those is discrete from the other. So if you've got, you know, if you've got three access points or less than three, it makes it easy. Use 1, 6, and 11. As long as your neighbors don't have any of those, you're good. If you've got five, what you want to do is lay it out so that there are no, um, there are no ones next to each other. There are no sixes next to each other, no 11s next to each other. The other thing I will point out, and this is something I tested this weekend here. I did. I set all my G-Base stations to be the same. Uh, whereas previously I had not had them that way. And I set all my, my, and my five gigahertz base station to be the same. And what I found was that is not good because the Mac anyway, based on, on my testing this weekend will pick the base station with the strongest signal. Now that doesn't necessarily mean the fastest signal. If I, I had a, an N and a G available to me and I was in the house today, um, the G base station this with my MacBook Pro, so it can do full, you know, 230 megabit N connection. My MacBook Pro had a 56 uh, signal strength to the G and a 39 or something to the N. And it picked the G base station and I could not force it to pick the N. I mean, there's just no way they both had the same name. So I highly recommend using one naming structure for your 2.4 gigahertz and then one name for your five gigahertz and and Spread your network out that way. And then that way, you know, you say, oh, I'm a five gigahertz client. I'm going to choose that one and then migrate around. So that's uh, that that's that's my my uh, advice based on what I read online and, and obviously what I tested here. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And actually, if, if you go to any, uh, you know, trade show um, airport, right, you know, place that offers Wi-Fi and you fire up something like Air Radar, you'll see this. You'll see they have different MAC addresses, but the same name and and different channels for the most part. Very cool. All right. Uh, before we get into the kind of miscellaneous questions for this week, John, we in our pre-show tonight, we had a little bit of chatter about Time Machine and enough so that it seemed worthwhile creating a topic impromptu for it. So it what, would seem that way. You want to you want to start this one, John? Well, I saw something. I thought this was, you know, due to the nightmare that I had with uh, 
you know, 1057 here. Uh, one thing I noticed when I rebooted it and, you know, after, after I installed the update was, oh man, time machines just sitting there doing nothing again. I'm like, oh no, because as, as most of you know, uh, I and others, um, have had issues with corrupted, uh, images on, on the time machine or time capsule. I, I have one, uh, in fact, on the machine that we're podcasting on today, it yeah, decided yeah, yeah. to tell me that it was corrupted. So I've got to use uh, drive genius and see if I can't make her go. Okay. Or even disutility, you know, it would just try. Be, yeah. A I, really yeah. Long time. Okay. All right, well, but anyway, so what I did is you pointed, uh, you know, earlier, if you use console and you look for backup D messages and this was the message I saw, which, uh, I had never really looked for before. Uh, don't recall seeing, but it it said backup D, which is the name of the uh, the time machine process. Node requires deep transversal slash blah blah, blah and the, the name of the volume, and then reason and buried in that is uh, uh, let's see, flag reason of NDB untrustable. So I think what it's saying, I got I got to re-index or just figure out you know this this whole directory here that you pointed me at because it, something changed from the last time I've seen it. I think that's what it's saying. But anyways, okay. it sits there for a yeah. good long time until it gets past that point. Sometimes it could be an hour or something like that, but it will, in my experience, always get past that point, and then and then everything is is happy. Yep, I, I've seen that too. Uh, it, it's if if I think so. Don't it, freak out if you see that right. message. It's doing some work. It may take a while. I think it it happens um, if if it sees something that it doesn't expect to see, which often is caused when a backup is stopped midstream, either by a machine going to sleep or falling off the network or, you know, one of those various things that can happen. And it just sort of wants to make sure, okay, integrity check time, forget what I think I know. Let me look and, and get new data and get myself in sync with, with what's out there. So I saw, I saw something interesting. I sent it to you uh, earlier this week. I was looking at, uh-huh. and I can't pull it up now, of course. Um, there it is. I, I was looking at my my backup logs and my time capsule. I have a one terabyte time capsule and I back up five max to it. Five, one, two, three, four, five, I think. And it's getting full. Right. Um, now, Time Machine is supposed to manage this. Um, and one of the things that I saw out there was it said. Uh, compacting storage in the logs, I requested one point four, two gigabytes, one point four, zero was available Stopped the backup, canceled the backup, ejected the time machine disk image, and then the line says compacting backup disk image to recover free space. Uh, it did that for, I don't know, a minute or two. Then it started the backup again. And instead of having 1.40 gigabytes, it had 5.46 available. Uh, so it's clearly there's there's something going on with with the way the sparse bundle is managed that uh, deleted files aren't always totally cleared out. And it, it goes in and, and sort of wipes those uh, those old backups out when uh, I think it, it had deleted them long before this. But but now it actually went through and, and freed up the space that, that had been marked as deleted by these. But I do have to say something, you know, Apple markets this time capsule as a device that you can back up multiple machines to. I've got the five backing up to it. The drive sits at full all the time. And I this weekend had a machine that where it said, uh, yeah, look, I need, uh, you know, it started and it said there's there's like four gigs available and I need five. And then as days went on, it said there's, you know, four gigs available or three. I need seven. I need 11. I need 18. And it's like, you know, um, aren't you supposed to manage yourself? And the problem is each computer manages. This is where. This is where this sort of thing breaks down that the benefit of time capsule is it's Achilles heel, right? Where mm-hmm. there's nothing managing all of the backups on the drive and nothing seeing right. it from a holistic approach. Each computer sees its own stuff and could care less about what else is on the drive and what else mm-hmm. is happening. Whereas, you know, it, if, if you were using something like retrospect where it's seeing everything, you can say, oh, wait, I need some disk space. I, I've marked my computers to say, look, it's fine if you need to delete old stuff, but my computers will only delete their own old stuff. So I've got one machine that's got backups going, you know, all the way back to July and another machine that can't get a backup in 
because there's no room on the drive. It's like, well, wait a minute, go, you know, steal from Peter if you need to and pay Paul. But it won't do that because it's not smart enough. It could. The permissions are such that it could traverse through those and say, oh, yeah, yeah, wipe this stuff out. We're good. Um, And hopefully Apple is working on this because I think, you know, certainly we've had people out there who have had time capsules for more than a year. They came out last February. And I know I'm not the only one going through this, um, but, you know, I can't make it delete old stuff from one to free up space for the other. It, it's I don't know. It's not good. It's a it, it, it's a failure. It, it's one of these times where Apple has not had enough vision on a on a product. So we'll have to we'll have to see how it goes. Do you have anything you have anything to uh, to <clears throat> solve my problems there, John? You're going to make my yeah. life better by by two of them. Yeah, that's the answer. Like, well, the heck with that. I don't need backups from July on that machine. You know, and go ahead and ask me. I'll tell you no. All right. Where where are we time-wise here? We have time to talk about. Wow, it's 50 minutes already. Look at us go. All right. We got to answer some questions here. Um. All right. So, Andrew, and I don't think it's the same Andrew, but it might be. Andrew says, and, and we have a, a comment from Brian on this one, too. Andrew says, a caller asked about booting his Intel Mac with SuperDuper. Dave discussed using GUID partitioning scheme to make a USB drive bootable with Intel-based Macs. Out of curiosity, I cloned my Intel-based MacBook Pro or Mac Pro to my Western Digital Passport drive as usual upon using the latest version of SuperDuper. I checked in disk utility and the partitioning scheme for the passport was set to master boot record. However, since SuperDuper's last function to make drive bootable, I thought I would test the passport to see if it would boot my Intel-based MacBook with an Intel Core Duo. Sure enough, holding down the op- option key showed my USB passport drive as bootable selection. I booted right into it. My MacBook Finder and Dock looked exactly like my Mac Pro, and I could access all my data. And as it turns out, Andrew, you are correct. In fact, there's more data, as Brian will share with us here, where he says EFI which is the extensible firmware. Uh, John, you're going to look that up if you don't know it already. Uh, Recognizes both APM, Apple Partition Map, and GUID drives, and according to Andrew, master boot record drives too, and can boot from drives partitioned using any of those schemes. So an Intel Mac can boot from master boot record, according to Andrew, and then according to Brian and everything else I read on the internet, uh, Apple Partition Map as well as GUID. You cannot install Mac OS X onto an Apple Partition Map partitioned drive when running an Intel Mac because the installer application for Tiger and Leopard demands that you reformat the drive using GUID. You can, however, clone a boot drive from GUID to APM and then boot an Intel Mac from that APM partition. So uh, we, we sit corrected because I am not standing tonight. But uh, we. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> now you know I did find something though that kind of bothered me. Okay, which led us to give not entirely correct advice. We're gonna call it wrong advice. It's okay to be wrong, you know. Wrong is so you know absolute wrong. though. <laughs> it's just wrong. It, in that sense, it's it's correct. We can be yeah. correct in saying that we were wrong. Well, I just noticed that Apple disutility when it talks about partitions doesn't enti- is not entirely correct in the uh, information that, that they provide. So, all right, well there you go. Yeah, what what did it say? Read read read, read what it says. Apple there. partition map to use the disk to start up a power PC based Mac or to use the disk as a non startup disk with any Mac is what yeah. they say. Yeah. So that's yeah that's, they 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 do they force you to use GUID with the uh, Intel based Macs, but you do not have to although i think there's probably good reason to do so and i don't have that at my disposal at the moment yeah so we will move on we will thank andrew and brian and we will move on to mickey we will yeah because he has a fine question yes hey john and dave this is mickey out in phoenix arizona and i'm looking for some battery advice i like i'm sure many other people use my macbook pro as a desktop replacement and have an external monitor and multiple external hard drives plugged into it as well as many, of course, portable devices as well, and rarely take it off the desk. So my question is, what is the best advice you can give 
for maintaining the battery the best way possible. What I'm finding is I've already gone, I've had my MacBook Pro for two years. I've already gone through one battery with relatively low cycle count. It was around 50 and it was absolutely shot. And I think it has a lot to do with never unplugging it. So I guess I could unplug it every once in a while, but what is really the best advice that you could give on how often to power cycle the battery? Thanks. Love the show. All right. Uh, I, I do the same thing you do, Mickey. I rarely, uh, I only take my MacBook Pro off my desk when I travel or I need to test wireless networks or something. Uh, so, yeah, for the most part, I'm in the same boat you are. And like you, I have gone through many replacement batteries, um, you know, probably a handful of them over the years. The good thing is Apple uh, will replace batteries that die that have very low cycle counts. They they say, oh, wait a minute. You know, if your cycle counts less than 30 and the battery's not holding the charge, okay, you got a problem. Really, what they should tell you is, dude, you know, you got to use your battery sometime because that, in fact, is the thing that that keeps it going. I, I don't know. I, I know, John, you probably use your battery more than me. I I endeavor and usually succeed to cycle my battery, and by cycle, I mean let it go all the way down and then plug it back in and, and charge it up once a month. I probably should try to do it more often than that so i actually get to do it once a month but uh, but that seems to be enough and seems to keep the the battery happy uh, much longer than uh, than than previous what what do you do john i usually at this point i actually have two batteries and i'll i'll go between them so yeah i'll run them down same thing about you know once a month i'll run them all the way down okay or it hibernates or uh, you know just yeah Dies. And then uh, I have two batteries and I'll, I'll kind of bop between them. So they're always at about the same state. Um, but no matter where I am, I, I usually, well, I, ha- I have three power adapters. I have one upstairs, uh, actually two upstairs and one downstairs okay. um, in the main areas that I use the machine. So I'm almost always plugged in and charging the battery and topping it off or having it in trickle. Yep. Yep. But sometimes I'll go to a location where I don't want to lug the, uh, the adapter along. And, and you find you find like cycling that. them once a month tends to keep them uh, working for uh, for a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, and I've never seen them get into the the weirdness, you know, of ninety nine percent full and stuff. When when you start yeah. getting yeah. to that point, then the, usually either the battery's starting to die or the calibration is off. Yep. And to calibrate the battery, you do just what you said, right, John? You you let it totally die. Don't plug it in when it starts warning you. Just let it shut the machine off. Bring it all the way back up to a charge after that and do it again is, I think, the accepted method for calibrating a battery. Is that, would you agree, John? Yes. Um, and I use something called X battery, which will show you interesting things like the amperage, whether it's in charge or trickle charge mode. Yep. Um, the maximum uh, uh, current, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the maximum capacity. Yep. What is that in? Yeah, amp hours. Milliamp uh, hours. Things like that. Milliamp hours, yes. Yep. Yep. Cool. Uh, we, uh, we have time for one more. I'm not even going to check the time. We have time for one more question. Go. It's because Pete's sitting with me here. He's, you know. Hey guys, uh, this is Mark from Los Angeles. Um, I have a quick question in need of possibly your help. Um, I, uh, recently, uh, updated my, uh, MacBook. Uh, I went from a, um, the old black MacBook to a, uh, new 13 inch, uh, MacBook, um, aluminum. And, um, I have been doing a uh, backup using the time capsule through Time Machine, and I was looking to um, basically replace everything on my new computer through uh, Migration Assistant using my Time Machine. And it's going to take about 12 hours to do that, and I'm a little impatient. And I was wondering if there was a way of going into my uh, time capsule that has all my uh, time machine backups and sort of just going into there and uh, picking some things out. I uh, had some important information within um, DevonThink uh, stored away in there, and I was hoping I can get into my time capsule to dig it out. Um, uh, so I was wondering if you guys know of any way of doing that, not having to use Migration Assistant, or if there is a program out there that will allow me to do that. So any help would be great. Love the show, guys. And um, if you need to send me an email. All right, cool. Uh, we, we'll just answer it here. So 
I think, uh, John, what do you, go ahead. You, you, you got this one, or at least uh, you can start this one. Yeah, we were talking beforehand. I, yeah. I, I get nervous uh, trying to circumvent uh, built-in mechanisms like migration assistant and stuff like that. Just what I'll say. If you want to grab the data, you know, should be able, uh, should do it through the uh, time capsule interface. So that's my take on one aspect of this. Yeah, I I agree. Don't touch it. Don't, yeah. Okay. And and I <laughs> the problem I would... is you can. Now you know I've noticed this, and I'd say this is probably a good thing. Well, well OS ten hides a lot of things from you, like a lot of the low level uh, Unix directories. There's no reason you need to see that stuff, at least from the <laughs> UI. You can That's if true. you want, yeah. you know, but, but I noticed the other day, you know, like I, I, I was mentioning, you know, I'm working on this installer and um, XP by default, you know, when you try to, you know, jump in the system folder and stuff, it's like, uh, you know, I don't really think you should be here, but if you really want to be, then click here and then I'll show you what you, right. what you think you're looking for. Right. <laughs> I just, I just tend to trust uh, the built in stuff. Uh, the, the follow on though, Dave, I think you, you, you have kind of a little, little uh, trick with, uh, yeah, so capsule I didn't know about. Well, the the first thing I do is is would say yeah, if you want to go and dig this data out, go into your your time capsule. And John, help me with the navigation here. You go go into the time capsule, choose the drive, open up the disk image. Inside the disk image, you'll see backups.backupdb, and then inside that, you'll see the drive name or drive names of the drives that are backed up for whatever computer created that disk image. And then inside those folders, or maybe one way, maybe it's backwards from that, but you will see a list of folders with dates. And at the top of that list or the bottom will be a folder called current in that it, that's an alias to the most recent backup. And you can dig in there and then it's just like navigating your hard drive. You can dig in there and find the files. So if you know where to look, you can go pull stuff out. And in theory, it should work just fine. Uh, if you want to let Time Machine do it, if you go to your Time Machine menu at the top of your uh, your screen in your menu bar, uh, and you click on the, the little menu, if you're already backing up, you'll see an option. It's the third option down called Enter Time Machine. If you're not backing up, or if you are and hold down the option key, you'll see a listing called Browse Other Time Machine Discs. And this will let you go and look at other time machine backups and pull just the files you want, treating them as an existing backup. It'll bring you into the time capsule or time machine interface with the stars flowing. And you can go and choose a date and then go and restore just the files that you want. So that would be the Apple prescribed officially supported method of doing this, Mark, is is get in there and, and do it that way. So. Um, so that, that's what I would do. But if you want to, you can go and navigate to that current folder and, and pull stuff out. So that's the, uh, that's my advice. And with that, I'm going to try and bring the band in here, John. It's nice weather to be out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was beautiful today. Except for the buckets of pollen that the trees were dumping on. Yeah, that, that, I think that finally got me. I was out, after we did the, the scavenger hunt, I was out doing some work in the yard and I, it just it's not good. But uh, I'm, I'm coming down your way tomorrow, so I'm going, I'm going to see two concerts between now and when we do the, uh, the podcast next. So tomorrow night I'm going to see Unwigged and Unplugged, which is Spinal Tap Acoustic down at the Beacon Theater in New York. And then that'll be Tuesday night. And then Sunday, uh, I found someone to sell me for face value tickets to see fish at uh, Fenway Park. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Dark Ambient on Twitter was the savior, my savior on on this one. I was going to go pay StubHub exorbitant fees. And uh, he saw that and replied to me. And he's like, no, 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 dude. What's StubHub? Is that like... Legal scalping, or it's a it's a ticket exchange, is what it is. It lets people set prices for the tickets. StubHub charges you ten percent on top of whatever they Ooh. they pick as their price, but they guarantee that the tickets are going to be good or your money back. So, and they facilitate the whole process without sharing your information around and not. And yeah, it keeps saying eBay bought them. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. It's good cash. Yeah, it's yes, it, it it's it is a good business model. It, you know, it kills me to pay that kind of money for fish tickets. When back in the day, you know, I used to show up at a show with extra tickets and just give them away to people. So it was nice to see a little bit of that karma come back. Yeah, why not? 
if I had an extra ticket. Aren't you a heck of a guy? Fish tickets were always relatively cheap. I mean, I would pay like 20 bucks or 30 bucks for a ticket, so we'd buy a couple extras, and if we couldn't get friends to come with us, we'd just... Uh, you know, the, the intention would always be, oh, we'll sell them in the lot. But, you know, you see somebody nice and just like, here, thanks, take it. You know, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, so you got any extra tickets for, for these things? Uh, I Not for these. No. No, <laughs> I, I wish I did. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, you know. So, uh, all right. Where are we here? Pete's distracting me. <laughs> wasn't me. Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't. Uh... <coughs> Where are we here? iPhone Alley uh, is the home of Michael Johnston, who has converted this show to AAC for all of your uh, listening and interactive pleasure. John F. Braun on the other end there. He's the one doing the show notes and rocking that out. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth for us. The podcast marketplace is where all our sponsors uh, hang out there. That is the A5, A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software, Text Expander from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and one free download from Audible at audiblepodcast.com slash MacGeekGab, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. They can contact us, John. All you listeners out there can uh, can contact us. You heard all these people uh, write in and oh, call man. in. How do they call in, John? Well, if you want to call in using you know, the old-fashioned uh, telephone, uh, you probably call... 206-666-GEEK, which is... 4335. And you can email us at feedback at macgeekgab.com. John, that did you is... Say, did you say feedback at macgeekgab.com? I said feedback at macgeekgab.com. That's exactly right. Uh, you can see the show notes that John creates at macgeekgab.com or macobserver.com slash podcast or wherever that brings you. I tweet them. And John tweets it out. That's right. Uh, so John is John F. Braun at twitter.com. I'm Dave Hamilton. Pete is Pilot Pete. And you can follow the Mac Geek Gab link, which uh, will give you just the show stuff and perhaps a little idle chatter from here and there. That's a, it's a good place to tweet questions because both John and I see them. And if uh, one of us can, Sometimes. We'll, we'll get if out there. If we're distracted enough, we'll get the question. That's right. Yeah, we got to do another uh, think about considering... Yeah, we Think about considering. Look at us. (laughs) Trying to, you know, build expectations here. That's right. Let's get out of here. My, My throat's falling away.